the Black Girl Nerds podcast is undergoing a makeover. We're under a new format. We're no longer doing the live shows. We're now doing recorded episodes. And with the recorded episodes, gives us a lot more flexibility. So we're going to break it up into segments, provide you more content, give you a little bit more in each and every episode than we've been able to do in the past. But I need your help. So one of the first things that I want to plea and ask all of our listeners to do is first of all, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. With subscriptions gives us a lot more visibility out here in the podcast world. So if you're listening to us on SoundCloud, subscribe. If you're listening to us on iTunes, subscribe. If you're listening to us on Stitcher Radio, subscribe, subscribe. And also be sure to rate us and let us know how we're doing. Leave comments. So that's the way you can support us in podcasting. And also you can support us by doing something else. Yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask you for money. It's important. Because here's the thing, running a website costs money. Running a podcast costs money. Your donations go a huge, huge and long way. So you can do it a few ways. You can go to our website, blackgirlnerds.com. If you go to the right sidebar, there's a donate button for PayPal. You can donate there. Also on the right sidebar, there's blog ads. Blog ads allows you to promote your good or service and we promote it on the website, doing a win-win situation either way. So blog ads is another option. Finally, you can go to TeePublic. If you go to TeePublic, we can provide you with really great merchandise with the Black Girl Nerds logo on it. We're also running a special that will be launched soon where we're giving discounts for the holiday season. So make sure you check us out on TeePublic and check out our shirts. If you go to the Black Girl Nerds Twitter page, on the profile, there's a pinned tweet there that has the link to the Tee Public page. Use that link so that way you can get the special rate and discount for your clothing. Again, I appreciate all of the effort, all of the support, all of the word of mouth that has been given for Black Girl Nerds since we started back in 2012. It's because of all of you that we have been able to evolve into this space and grow exponentially. So thank you for that. And thank you for everybody that's donated. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Alvern Ball has an MFA in fiction writing from Columbia College, Chicago. He was taught graphic novel writing at Noble Charter High School in Chicago. He has written comic and graphic novel material for such companies as De Bonaventura Productions, Paramount Pictures, McGraw-Hill, Lions Forge Comics, New Paradigm Entertainment, Campfire Graphic Novels, and 133art.com. Mr. Ball is the recipient of the 2014 and 2015 Glyph Rising Star Award for his writing on 133Arts, One Nation, and One Nation Old Druids. 
Mr. Ball has also traveled to South Africa to work as a storyline writer on the hit telenovela Uzalo. He's currently working on teleplays, screenplays, and numerous graphic novels. This is Jamie Brodnax with the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you for tuning into this segment with writer, creator, Alvern Ball, who is on our show to talk about all of his latest projects and really just his experience as a writer in the comic industry, as a writer in the television industry. Um, so Alvern, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. So first of all, um, give us some background about the kind of work that you do. You've worked in television, you've worked in comics. Can you give us a little bit of a brief history of your work in both industries? Sure, I will try. <laughs> um, I've been writing comics probably for now a good 10, 12, 12 years on and off, um, just learning it when there was no um, no Google to internet on how to write comics. So I kind of basically taught myself how to write comics, done television, like recently um, went to South Africa to work on a TV show called Uzalo. And um, I've done little small things here and there, like I've um, a project for Paramount, which is um, based off this movie. But I wow. guess I've, I've been doing I've done a few things here and there. So when you say and I'm glad you brought that up about it was self-taught before Google and the Internet. Explain to us how you taught yourself to write comics and, and create stories on your own. Sure. I, I got into comics late. Um, I think I got into it around 16 or 17 years old. And I think it was because of um, Spawn. Um, mm. I actually came across the toys. And when I saw the toys, I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the exact toy I want to make. And then I found out there was a, you know, a comic book. I went to this um, prestigious high school um, on the north side of the city called Lane Tech in Chicago. And I found this comic shop and ended up finding Spawn. And as I started reading Spawn, I got into other comics. But what I started to realize was that I wanted to write comics, but there was nothing out told you how to write comics. And so what I would do is um, I would go to school and, you know, I'd be with all these friends that were artists. And I was like, I got these ideas for comics, but I don't know how to write them. So what I started doing was that I basically started extensively just studying the comic book, like putting it up and reading it panel for panel, counting the panels on a page and counting the words on a page. And then um, a few years later, I came across a book called Scriptwriters on Comic Script Writing. Hmm. And it had all these different interviews with all these you know, great script writers like Garth Ennis, you know, Todd McFarlane about mm -hmm. how they write comics. What I learned from that was that um took a great deal from Ennis. He had this thing where he say he would um he when he started working on the script, he would literally map out the book on like in the margins of a page. So he would like he would draw the idea of how he thought the page should um be laid out. And that gave him an idea for how he wanted to tell the story. So that's essentially what I started doing. It was um, I just started laying out pages in the margins of my notebook, uh, uh, how I thought the page would lay out and um, an idea of the panel. And then some years later, um, I guess I perfected my style when I came across Bendis's script book for powers. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really loved that he did in the book was that he numbered the panels instead of just calling them panel, like panel one, panel two. He just put a number. And I thought, oh, that makes my life so much easier. <laughs> without having to write out panel each time. Oh, and I guess I should backtrack a little and say, when I was in high school, I went and took this class at this um, institute called the Marwin Institute. 
there was this free art institute that was in Chicago that anybody that um, that wanted to learn art could take these free classes. And they had this comic book drawing class. Now, take it. I'm not an artist. I can't even draw a stick, like a straight stick figure. But I thought, well, if I can understand what an artist sees, then it'll make it easier for me to write for that artist. So that's what I did. I took like this 16-week, no, I, I take that back. It was like 12-week course on comic book um, drawing. And I could not draw like I said, I can't draw a word for lit, but I took this course <laughs> believing that, you know, if, if I could understand what the artist sees, then it would help me as a writer. And that's wow. kind of how I got into it. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And I mean, obviously, from doing that kind of research, having that academic background, reading all of those books, it's paid off very well because you have a lot of awards under your belt. Glyph Rising Award winner back in 2014 and uh, this year in 2015. And you've also won for screenplay competitions as a quarter finalist and TV pilot competitions. Is writing for comic books any different than writing for television in terms of how you are building the story structure? Or is it two different kind of mediums where the story is told in a different kind of way? Um, I think comic Makes, they're essentially harder if you haven't written them. You know, I think they're essentially harder if you're coming from, say, a screenwriting to comics. You kind of get a general idea of how it works. But I always tell people, um, I used to teach comic book writing at um, high school here in Chicago. And um, what I would tell people and my students is that when you're creating comics, you have to look at each one of these panels as like a small picture within a picture. So every time there's action, there has to be a picture within a picture within a picture. And I think um, for comics, it's harder because there are a lot of people that get into it thinking, oh, yeah, this will be easy. And then when you first sit down, you have this overarching idea of how a story should play out. And when you're writing a screenplay or teleplay, it's very easy to just, you know, knock out a few lines of action and then give dialogue. But when you're writing comics, it's like you're having to write every minute piece of action. Wow. And a lot of people don't get that. That it's just the small, minute um, movements that you're having to write. So your descriptions of a panel, or even panels on a page, can you know can be somewhere between a page to three pages. Whereas if you're in a movie or a teleplay, you can do a whole scene in one page. You had mentioned earlier that you worked on a TV show called Uzala, and you traveled to South Africa for that TV show. Tell us about your experience traveling out to South Africa to write for a TV show. Oh, uh, it was it was a crazy whirlwind experience. Like basically the producers, um, my writing partner, Aaron Lewis, who who's also my partner in this company that we started, Ariane Digital Media Group. He's a um, director. And um, so basically he um, he knew the producers of the show and they reached out to him. They were like, we got this show, but they were having some problems with the story. And he was like, dude, you need to read this. And they, I read it. And as soon as I read it, it's like I instantly, um, I kind of just resaw how to remake the whole show. And so I wrote this treatment. And by Wednesday, they were saying, okay, how fast can you get to Africa? <laughs> we were like, <laughs> Are you, are you serious? And I think I thought he was playing because he sends me the email. He goes, they want us to come to South Africa to, to work on the show. And I'm like, this is this is not happening. I just I just wrote the treatment, you know, a day ago. This is not happening. And so by Thursday, I was literally going to the um to the um, passport. And by Friday, I was flying out to South Africa. And I have to say that um it's my first time going outside the country. It was an amazing it was an amazing trip. I mean, the trip was long and I slept most of it, which is, which was good. But once I got there, 
in South Africa, it, it felt very different than being in America, um, especially being on a continent or inside a country that's mostly, you know, of people that look like you. They're right. dark skinned, just like you. And and so nobody's looking at you weird. You're looking at all the other people that are, that, you know, they're of a different, you know, um, skin tone, a little weird. But um, we got there. What I what I found to be most impactful is that at the time when I got there, the, um, the Mike Brown thing had just exploded over here. Mm-hmm. And people in South Africa were more concerned about what was going on over here than what we're as Americans are concerned about what's going on over there. They were more knowledgeable about everything that was happening at that time with Mike Brown's murder and the uh, subsequent murder of Trayvon. They were, they were wondering what's next. And they were like, is this going to explode into something bigger? That really shook me to my core, to the idea that I would, we always hear about how, I don't want to say here, we always see how um, the media um, portrays Africa as being this, this third world country. It was like there were these massive, large buildings everywhere. There was all this infrastructure. And it was like, okay, so this is not what I see on TV, <laughs> you know? Because I had this idea, like, I knew it wasn't as bad, but I thought, okay, there's still going to be, there's still going to be poverty everywhere. And it was not. And it was like, it was this beautiful landscape of just, I don't know, I, I, it's hard to describe. We went to this, um, to this, um, Zulu park. I won't, I won't call it a park. It was a park. It was a piece of land. We stood on this, um, on this balcony. And one of the writers that was with, he goes, look out over this land. And we were on this balcony and I look out and there's land everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the guy, um, Cebu, who's a, who's now a director for this show, he goes, this is Shaka's land. This is our land. This is your land. And, and, and I just swelled with pride because I was like, wow, I'm not even, you know, from here. And you're telling me this is my land too, you know? And it, it was just an amazing experience that, um, I always tell people, um, that if you get a chance, you should go back to South Africa. Because one of the biggest things, like we went, we went into this township, and this is just to veer off a little. We went into this township, and there were, you know, there were people that were that had a little less money than others. But what I found interesting, like I, I go to ask Cebu, I was like, what's the biggest thing? What's the biggest crime in this area? And he goes, car theft. Hmm. And I'm like, wait, that's it? And the reason I asked this was because we had stopped uh, on this location to look at this house. And this house was literally a mini mansion. And right next to it was what we in America would consider a shack. And I kept asking him, well, are you sure it's only car theft? And he goes, yeah, it's the biggest thing here. And I'm like, so nobody's trying to kill each other? And he goes, no, no, everybody lives, you know, we all understand who is who. And he was telling me that like this mansion that was sitting on this, this plot of land, it used to be a shack. And the guy or the family that owned it worked their way up and built this mansion. You know, they built it from the shack into a mansion. And I thought that was just interesting that nobody, because you had, you know, middle class, lower class or whatever you want to call it. And, and people with money all living right next to each other. And nobody was trying to kill each other. I find it very interesting that any sort of film or story that we see depicted in the media of several different nations in Africa always show the grittier, more negative and ugly side of these nations. I mean, there are so many Oscar nominated movies that tell about different countries in Africa where they're dealing with terrorist organizations and stealing diamonds and, and killing young kids, you know, for, for money or for gold and bringing many young kids into slavery. And, and these are things that have happened in African nations. But I know that there is more 
to that continent than the images that we see on television and the images that we watch in all of these movies. And it's very unfortunate that that is the only side that we see. And I think it's very telling that when you think about some of the production companies and even the creative teams that are behind the making of these films, there's not that many black faces in the room that they're told through a, a white lens. And it makes me wonder, why are we only seeing that kind of imagery when we don't see all the other aspects of, of what the continent of Africa has to bring? I remember myself when I was in college, I went to a HBCU uh, historically Black College University, for those that don't know what that acronym means. And my professor was Kenyan. And he told us, he's like, look, Kenya is not what you guys see here in America. I laugh when I watch images on television of Kenya, because that is not what my country looks like. And like you mentioned, there's it, it, there's a lot of industry there. A lot of African nations at this point are leading in the digital age. They're leading in technology. So I, I just find it very interesting that, you know, we are still now in 2015 in this space where continent of Africa is still seen as a, a third world place and, and many nations within it are seen as third world countries when in fact that is not the case at all. But I guess it's up to us to, to tell stories that are really depicting of what it is to be a part of the African experience. Yeah, and I think that's why the producers, um, after after we got over there, um, we uh, met one of the producers. Um, her name is Mitzi, and um, and Google. Um, they were both they're both producers, and Google's the executive producer of the show. And that was one of the things they talked about a lot. Was that um, we got there, they were like we read your treatment, and we're like the thing that really got us is that um, I guess they had all these previous writers who were colonial bound, you know, from England or whatever. Mm. And each one of the writers that came in to work on the show kept trying to make the Africans out, the savages, kept mm. trying to make all the African people be bad and villainous, and each one's killing each other with guns. And one of the things they told me that after they read the, they say, um, after they read the treatment, they, they were just floored that I, um, I had made none of the characters be barbaric, and none of them were killing each other. And I was like, exactly, why do we, you know, it's a story, there's a story here. And um, that's one of the things I really loved about Yuzalo, is that was done by Black Africans um, with the idea that black people in general don't have to be savages, that we don't have to be murderers, that we can do more than than play the shuck and jive. And and that's what I really loved about what they were doing with the show, that they were telling this dramatic show about these two brothers. Um, well, yeah, these two kids who have been switched at birth and and, and they're in two different families, only to realize that they this inner being or this inner about them was pushing them towards these other these opposite families that they actually belong to that was really cool and i loved also i should mention i just loved that every time um south africans wherever i went they spoke they didn't speak about south africa they spoke about black people mm. so every time they talked about america or anybody else that was of color it was always black people and they always one of the questions i was asked was why don't more african-americans or black people come to south africa it was like and I couldn't answer that until I until I got there. And then I realized it's because we see these images where we think there's Ebola, there's no structure. And it's right. like it's the opposite. And it, and, it, and I realized after coming back, that's what America wants you to believe. Yep. They want to brainwash you so you don't want to have to go back. Because once you go back, you realize, like I, like I tell everybody, is that I almost every week or so, I dream about Africa. My body longed to go back to Africa, to go to South Africa. You know, and, yeah. and 
and I just remember um, having this conversation with a few producers and some other South Africans where it amazed me that as a continent, South Africa feeds the world. The world doesn't feed South Africa. Yeah. And, I, and I keep telling people that South Africa doesn't need any, not even South Africa, but I mean Africa as a continent, doesn't need anyone. The world needs Africa. Africa can sustain on its own. It has its own fuel. I mean, they're ahead of the game resources. right now in terms yeah. of technology, in terms of uh, cell phone uh, use and the Internet. They are actually on the cutting edge of the digital age. And when you think about things like who are the wealthiest earners in the world, the wealthiest black woman, it's not Oprah Winfrey. It's an oil baroness that lives in Nigeria. (laughs) So, I mean, I I just find it very interesting that we have such a warped perception of what Africa is. But then, you know, we have been brainwashed. It goes back to what I said before about the Oscar-nominated films. Like, I can think of off the top of my head movies like Hotel Rwanda, Blood Diamond, The Last Scotsman, you know, these movies dealt with terrorist organizations. It dealt with a lot of uh, slaughter of innocent people and people being enslaved. And it's a shame that that, those are the kind of stories that get the most attention that are based in the continent of Africa rather than stories of just everyday people or even a wealthy billionaire oil baroness and how she became who she is today. Um, So it it, it is a very interesting thing that, unfortunately, we're we're getting a very one-sided view of what uh, Africa is and and definitely what South Africa is, because then you always hear the word apartheid associated with South Africa. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to switch gears a little bit. You um, have a project called When We Were Kings. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. When We Were Kings is a webcomic that's um, been published um, by Afropunk.com. Oh, I love them. Yeah, yeah. So they've been publishing this weekly comic book um, where I think we're up to chapter seven comes out tomorrow, actually, nice. uh, which is going to be done by Serena Guerrero. But anyway, um, the web comic is um, featuring, I want to say six, yeah, six, seven, eight, eight different artists <laughs> of color wow. who nice. have helped to put this thing together. And um, and that ranges from, from not only um, black but Latino artists and also female artists. And uh, the story is basically um, the story of this astronaut named Eric who returns to Earth after there's been a nuclear holocaust, only to discover that his wife and son um, may have survived this holocaust. And now he's set in this uh, post-apocalyptic world searching for them. So it's kind of like, I always say, it's kind of like the road meets Book of Eli, where this guy is searching for his family. And and along the way, he comes across these various characters and various different societies that have sprung up out of this Holocaust, uh, out of this nuclear Holocaust, and how this new world um, is portrayed. Wow. So that's basically what When We Were Kings. And like I said, I think we are on Chapter 7 right now. Chapter 7 comes out um, Monday, and then Chapter 8 will be um, coming out the week after. And then um, I guess we'll do another round at some point. What's your opinion right now? Because I think there's a big conversation happening with respect to comics and diversity and a lot of the big two, well, the big two, I should say, you know, their feet is being held to the fire. Social media and folks on the interwebs are really pointing out the lack of diversity in the staff room at both of these publishing companies. And I wanted to get your take on what did you think about the recent publication of the hip hop variants that were happening through Marvel? 
Um, what what are your thoughts about that and also the response to people criticizing the hip hop variants because of the fact that black culture is being commodified through images of hip hop, but yet we're not seeing many people of color in the writer and editing room. Right. So I guess I guess that's always been hip hop, right? <laughs> we can we can we can put out the we can in a way, we can put out the product or you know, we can create the product, but we can't be we can't own our masters, if you want to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't own your master copies, but you can put out something. Um I thought with the Marvel thing it was just a bad choice on them to do this this homage at a time when really, okay, you're gonna you're gonna get African American artists, not all, but some, to right. create these 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 homage covers to all this of these great hip-hop albums but at the same time you won't get black writers to write any of the stories that are in these same comics Mm -hmm. and now i'm not saying hire me because of my skin right but i'm saying level the playing field um there was something that and, and this is not to take away from any of the writers that have been hired as of late by marvel and dc but it's interesting that there's only been what two, you know, and mm-hmm. I think, um, and I think it was Hannibal that said it. He, um, Hannibal um, is a, a, a writer friend of mine, and um, I think he said something like, "It's great that Marvel hired Coates, but he was like, what about the writers like me and him that have been learning this craft for the last ten plus years mm-hmm. that have put in the work to learn this craft and that know how to do it? Mm-hmm. Not saying that somebody from the outside can't do it because right. easily you can." If you can write, you can write just about anything if you can learn it, I, I think. But what about all those writers that have been submitting left and right, you know? Right. I, I, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, Eric Stevenson said something about the reason that Image didn't have any black or more black creators because black creators weren't um, submitting anything. And I thought, wow, that really? No black creators are submitting anything. <laughs> we just, you know, we just fed up and decided we're just going to keep creating but nobody wants to be under the, the big eye. It, it sounds ridiculous. So here's my thing about that. Ta-Nehisi Coates, huge fan, by the way, and he follows Black Girl Nerds on Twitter. So thank you for that. And hopefully you can come on the podcast in the future. I, I think, first of all, he's definitely qualified to write Black right. Panther. The way he's articulated himself in pop culture, I think he would be a perfect fit for T'Challa's story. But... I think it's very interesting that, like I mentioned before, that Marvel's feet have been held to the fire by a lot of people on social media. I'm one of those people. And that all of a sudden, I noticed a Twitter exchange between Ta-Nehisi Coates and I forgot the name of the Marvel editor that um, sent him a message on Twitter. But anyways, there was a conversation and he invited him to say, hey, send me an email and we can get together. And that's how the relationship happened. So Marvel took it upon themselves to make it very public, which I thought was very interesting. I, I do find it interesting that they hired him and, and made it very public. It, it, do, it does feel slightly like it's a PR move on Marvel's part. And I mean, I, I could be completely wrong in my assessment, but just based on what I noticed on social media, the Marvel hip hop variants getting a lot of backlash to the strange fruit backlash that had happened to um, mm-hmm. Axel Alonso's response, that backlash happening. And then they hire Ta-Nehisi Coates. I, I just find that the timing was very interesting. And you're right. I mean, there's so many black artists out there and, and writers that have been doing it for years. And yet they're they're still not getting enough visibility um, on the 
from the big two as they should. So, yeah, it, it, it did feel like it was very PR-ish. Yeah, it's just like when um, David Walker dropped Cyborg. It was like everybody was happy for him because it's a great moment in that feel like, oh, man, one of us got in there. We made it, you know. But then I think in the last couple of months, she's dropped, what, two or three more books with Marvel and DC. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's one of those things was like he's a great writer. He's getting his shot. Aren't there other writers? That's yeah. I, other than, you know, again, and it, it's not to throw salt at any other writer. Yeah. That's made it in there. But, it, but if I say it that way, it feels like it, you know? And it's not like at some point in my career, in my life, maybe I'll get that shot. I mean, I mean, you know, everybody looks for it, but I'm not looking for it right now. But I mean, there are other writers, I think, that, that are qualified that I see every day. That I'm like, why isn't this guy getting a shot, you know? And I can say that not only for the big two, for, but for the medium-sized publishers, too. I know a guy that, that writes for a medium-sized publisher. Right now, I will tell you, I can write him under the table. But I still can't get that same shot that I know he got. And I, I don't want to say it's because of race. But when I look at it, I, I, I kind of get this feeling that he's in the good old boys club. And he doesn't even probably even realize it. And again, it's not to to um, put a spotlight on anybody and say, hey, you letting this guy in but won't let me in. But I've, I've literally had meetings with some of these medium-sized publishers where I've been told, wow, this is one of the most professional pitches I've received in years. And then in the same voice, in, in the same breath to go, well, we're not looking right now to, to do any new creator own stuff. Then why have a meeting with me? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I, I find it just very interesting that in the comic book industry that there's only a select few that get to work on massive comics, um, work on tons of content as well. But uh, I just feel like the playing field should definitely um, expand out to other comic book writers and black comic book writers. Mostly it's men that are doing the writing. I, I don't see many women's name being thrown out there. Um, there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more black female artists that I know of that are, you know, starting to get out there with Marvel and DC and, and seeing Afua Richardson's work out there and um, Ashley A. Woods, their, her work out there. But I, I really would like to see more black female writers um, being mentioned. I was at the black panel over at San Diego Comic Con and when they had announced Milestone 2.0, which is very exciting. I'm, I'm very thrilled that Milestone is coming yeah. back. But when Reginald Hudlin and Dennis Cowan and Derek T. Dingle were up there talking about who they're bringing on as writers for, for their company, I didn't hear any women's names mentioned. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> Um, I totally agree with that. Um, it, 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 it's interesting that not only for black writers, you know, men or, you know, male or female, but also there's like how many black editors can you count? You know, right. it's just like it's like it's like if you, it's tunnel vision. If you're only getting stories from one type of person or one type of people, then it, these stories soon try to perpetuate an idea of what it's like to be a person of color or or a person of the opposite sex, you know, that's just like this, this that's stupid. What, what's that new stupid movie that's coming out? Gods of Egypt. That's oh, so laughable. God. It's like, how could you, how, how could any person that's, that's of color go? Yeah. If you didn't have, you know, if you didn't have an executive of color in that room going, you know, this is a bad idea. I can't wait to see that movie tank. I cannot yeah. wait. I mean, did they not see what happened with Exodus? Did they not see 
be able to see sort of the blueprint of what happened with the release of Exodus, the backlash from social media, and then the response from the ticket sales. I mean, I, I just don't understand how anybody can green light a film with a historical context based in the continent of Africa, the country of Egypt, and not have any people of color except one. They right. they cast Chadwick Boseman to shut us up. <laughs> right. He's like the I hate to say this, but he's like the magical Negro, right? You're like like and it's nothing against him. It's like if we get him, then you know, this would be okay. People won't won't protest. They won't be mad about it. Because look, we, we got somebody we, in the room. We got a black like guy. Him, right? So and so it's we're like, good. It's, it's ridiculous. Like yeah. 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 So like for we uh, for um, when we were kings, one of the things I made sure to do was that I hired um, a black female editor because oh, I wanted I nice. wanted this whole thing to be as diverse as possible. And what I started finding when when I was putting the project together, I was like, oh, I got all these male friends who are artists, but I don't have any female artists. And so I reached out to my friend um, Serena Guerrero, who is the or was the colorist for Mouse Templar, and she came in and did a story. And then I had a um, friend who who loved comic books and we a uh, coworker actually. And we talk a lot. And she was like, I would really love to one day write something or to edit something. And I thought, Oh my God, you're an editor. And she's like, yeah, I love doing this stuff. I'm like, okay, I want you to come on and edit this comic book series. That's going to be published by Afropunk. And that was one of the, the key things that I always push. Um, when we did this Afropunk thing was that I wanted to say, look, it's a diverse group of artists telling these stories. And then we have a black female editor. You know, wow. I was like, how many, how many people can, how many people can say that? Not, not many. I mean, honestly, I, I don't know of any black female editors out there. And yeah. it, it wasn't until I started working on black girl nerds and curating content and talking more about comics that I started finding out about black female artists out there and black female writers of comic books, because I thought, well, I thought we were an anomaly because you yeah. just don't <laughs> hear about it. And then I hear about women like Aletha E. Martinez, who has been in the game for 16 freaking oh, yeah. years. And nope. I mean, it, it amazes me that nobody at this point. No, she should be like I just a name. About, her about a couple months ago. <laughs> exactly. She should be. First of all, she should have a blue check on Twitter. She yep. should have she should be a name. People should know who she is. She's been working for Marvel for 16 years. She's worked as Axel Alonso's assistant for many years. It just bugs the crap out of me that nobody knows who Aletha E. Martinez is. And she has been in the game for a long time and worked on almost every single comic that we all know and loved as kids. Sorry to date you, Aletha. Um, <laughs> and then including working on heroes. Like it just, it, it, again, we, it's unfortunate that this industry is very dude bro-ish and that women get pushed aside when there's so many of us that are creating content and doing the work and we're just not being acknowledged. And then they just have their, their good old boy network of just a few dudes that just got in at the right time or know somebody that knows someone. And then they get all the accolades. They're getting all of the work. And I'm glad that you said that you were like, hey, you know, why don't we look for someone that's a female editor to give us a different perspective on this on this comic? I think that that's that's how people should think that yeah, there should be more totally. diversity. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why people don't think that way. Yeah, because I, I, I think um, I, I grew up with four sisters, so <laughs> maybe that's why. <laughs> um, but even when I'm when I'm working on um, female characters, I'm always striving to make sure. I'm not being overbearing in my idea of how it should be because, you know, I'm a guy trying to work right from that perspective. Um, I know 
in the the fantasy sh- series that me and Serena are creating, you have a, a female protagonist. So I'm always going to her because she's the artist to be like, hey, am I saying this right? Am I getting this right? And she'll call me out on it. And, and, and I love that because I always say, um, you know, I always tell people I love feedback. I love getting feedback on something because that means I have something to work towards, you know. Right. But if you tell me everything's great, then I know it's not, you know. I know something has to be wrong. No, no writer's great. But, yeah, I've been more conscious, I guess, in the last few years about building more diversity. I know with Ashley, we were supposed to, at some point, we're going to work on something together down the road whenever her schedule opens up. But I've, but like, for I know several to, black female artists if you need well, some recommendations. I'm looking for something. <laughs> I'm trying to do something in comics that's never been done before. Something, it's a type of story that's never been done in comics, at least in mainstream. And um, I'm looking for a female artist. And, and what I was going to say was that for Shakira Lane, the editor, it just became this thing where she would bring up all these comics every day at work. Like, hey, have you read this? Have you read this? And then it just became this natural progression where she's like, I really want to edit something. And I'm like, well, you can edit comics. And she's like, I never thought of that. And so now she's working on uh, When We Were Kings and she's working on this new series that's going to come out next year through Comic or Digital called Zulu, which is uh, about um, Shaka Zulu. (laughs) And this kid who gets possessed by a spirit and is endowed with these... um, superhero type powers mystical powers wow. so i'm trying i'm trying to um as i've always tried to make a way to give people a shot i think because, i mean it just it makes sense it just yeah. why wouldn't you want to have people in the room who are diverse and understand the plight of someone who has a marginalized voice whether you know it's a transgender person or you know if it's someone with a muslim background like i just don't understand why people can't see the perspective that diversity actually works in your favor. It doesn't work against you. I look at it this way. Diversity is not something that's pandering. People want to have different perspectives and diversity does not equal mediocrity. I cannot stress that enough. Just because you hire someone who is a person of color doesn't mean that you're just hiring them based on their, the color of their skin, that you are actually bringing in more depth to your your project, to your story by hiring a person of color. It's actually going to enhance your experience rather than diminish it. So I, I really, it, it just bugs me when people say those kinds of things. And it, honestly, I feel like people that do make those claims are either white people that are racist, that's uh-huh. pretty clear, yeah. or black people that have a lot of internalized racism you know, white supremacy has gotten the best of them, you know, what it is to be black and the black experience. So yeah, it's unfortunate. I totally agree. It's like, I don't want the affirmative action thing going on, you know, that, you know, that happened, it had its place, but in comics, it's like, don't make that the thing. Like, don't hire me just to try to fill the quota. If anything, don't hire me at all. Hire me because I'm the best fit for it. And what that means, you know, if you want to really level the playing field, then all I'm asking for is let me pitch just like the next person. Let me, if you got X, Y, and Z books that you think you want writers on, then put out a call to a certain many of your writers, you know, doesn't right. have to be a certain color, just X amount from this group, X amount from this group and tell everybody, okay, here's the criteria, pitch me a story for this story, for this character. And whoever has the best story, that's who you grab. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But yep. if I can't even sit at the table to pitch, then of course the field's not level because by the time I find out the book's coming out you've already got a team in place and it's like oh i didn't even have a chance to even pitch like let me pitch and that's been a hard problem i've been hearing a lot of writers lately writers of color especially you talk about 
how comics, how, you know, we're doing this thing and you either trying to find your audience or your audience isn't there for you like you thought they would be. And it's coming from the indie part where you see a lot of writers dropping out lately or thinking about, you know, stopping what they're doing because they just don't see an, an end to it. You know, you're putting so much money into creating these these comics and yet you're still trying to figure out how, how to balance the sheet at the end of the day. I was talking to um, Jason Reeves, a good friend of mine, and we were talking about how we just we want to be able to sit at the table instead of being at the table begging for scraps. Mm. And that's how I feel like, especially as a writer coming into comics and trying to break into, you know, the larger houses or even the medium sized publishers is that I'm at the table begging for scraps when I know I'm bringing you quality content. If this had been 10 years ago, I'm like, yeah, OK, I still got work to do that. I think this industry forgets is that all these great artists, all these great writers, they were not great when they first started. You know? Exactly. That's another thing. You got to give people a shot. And I think that's how technically that's how I got into started publishing comics. It was because um, at one point I, I wanted to send stuff out and nobody was accepting like, you know, pitches or anything. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there because I feel like there's got to be somebody can't tell you your story. You know, right. nobody can't control the story that you want to tell. And there's got to be more than just one story in the world. I Sorry can... to go on. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I'm I'm there with you. It's just I, I find it very interesting that, again, the argument is, oh, well, we don't want to just hire someone just for diversity's sake. And we want to make sure we have the best person for the job. And there's some pretty mediocre white comic book artists and writers out there, let me yes. just say, <laughs> where I'm just like, this person, I don't understand how he's had a career for so long. Um, how, yeah, how this book got published, but yeah, this book can't get published? Yeah. I, exactly. So yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, so why don't you tell us what projects are you currently working on? And also just for our listeners, give us your uh, social media shout outs and where we can find you online. So that way we can continue to support your work. Sure. You can find me online on Twitter at Alvern Ball or on Facebook as Alvern Ball. Or you can find me through um, my new publishing endeavor, ariondmg.com. That's A-R-I-O-N-D-M-G.com. And you can find both of those Ariane DMG on Twitter or Facebook also. My latest graphic novel, which will be coming out in March in Storewide, um, it's called Dime. So that'll be coming out in March. I just released Virgin Wolf digitally. Uh, I think the last issue came out last month. Yeah, the eighth issue came out last month. When We Were Kings, which is being published by Afropunk.com, that's up now. Chapter 7, Chapter 8 will drop week after next. And, and that's going to be broken into two parts because... Jason Reeves decided we needed to really blow up the story because he really loved it. <laughs> and then from there, I'm working on, um, is this just comics? Are we talking just comics? Yeah, no, okay. the whole gamut. Let us know. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I've got two new web series that will probably be coming out sometime next year. Right now, we're in talks um, with some producers. One is going to be called Crook County, and the other one is called Roman. It's created by my writing partner, Aaron Lewis. Me and Aaron, we just wrote um, a World War II film called Rhineland Bastards, which is the true story about a group of young Afro-Germans. So we're, we're, we're talking to a couple of production companies right now about about that. And we're also developing possibly a graphic novel on it. So and I'm trying to think there's all, so many other books. <laughs> we've also been working with the producers in South Africa. We've got two um, ideas that we've been talking about with them that may go into production next year. So I can't really say what they are yet. And then 
I guess I'll have a new crime comic coming out in 2016 called In the Dead of Night. I think that's about it. I'm sure I got something else. Oh, and Zulu, which is coming out um, next year through Comic or Digital. Um, that'll be a, a web comic, and then it'll go to digital through Comixology. And that's drawn by Michael Watson, a book for Titanium Comics called The Fraternity. So uh, I think I'm up to issue three on that. That'll be coming out pretty soon. I'm about to start drafting, or I should say not drafting, start writing a graphic novel for this um, doctor. That'll be coming out um, next year. Wow, so you're I, busy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm working on the edits of my novel. My novel comes out next year. It's called um, Only the Holy Remain. Wow, very good, very good. Well, thank you, Alvern Ball, for coming on and talking to us tonight. This was a great discussion. It was an awesome discussion. Thank you for having me. tuning into our next segment. So if you are an Arrow fan, then this is definitely a segment that you're going to enjoy. I had the opportunity to chat with Echo Kellum. Echo Kellum is our newest cast member from Arrow who plays the role of Curtis Holt, a tech geek, science nerd, and he's also the superhero known as Mr. Terrific from the Green Arrow comics. We talk about the show that he works on his cast members that he works with. Also, we talk about blurred culture and diversity in Hollywood. So take a listen. tuning into this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. This is very exciting for me. As you guys know, I live tweet every week, Arrow, aka on the hashtag Dimbos on Twitter. And Arrow is one of the greatest shows that is happening right now on the CW network. And we have a guest here tonight who is a new character in the latest season of Arrow who plays the role of Curtis Holt, aka Mr. Terrific. We have Echo Kellum here with us on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thanks for coming and talking to us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So, Echo, I know this is really exciting for you, getting the role of Curtis Holt. How did you prepare for the role, first of all? And tell us about what happened when you got that phone call saying, hey, you're going to be Mr. Terrific now. (laughs) Yeah, well, um... The original audition uh, was just some sides and whatnot that they wrote, and it was like kind of um they didn't say who the character was, so it was like code name and all that stuff like that. And so I, I I really gelled with the character. I thought he was like really smart and interesting, and you know uh, had heart behind him and whatnot. And so I when I started prepping for it, I generally I generally like to start prepping for roles that I read probably the, the night before. Um, I just feel like it helps me stay fresher and I'm not, 
pre-planning too many choices. I'm letting it be more fluid to really deliver in the room something unique that maybe even surprises myself. Um, so when I went in there, I felt like I had a lot of fun with it. Then I got called back the next day to meet with the producers and, and, and try it again. And then at the end of that session, they let me know, hey, by the way, this is Mr. Terrific. And we think you're awesome. And I was like, whoa, you know, it was like very cool that they even, you know, call me back in. And I was definitely blown away when I was like, this is a superhero. Holy crap. I thought I was just reading for <laughs> Matt or whatever his name was, you know, I'm just like, whoa. So uh, it definitely took me by surprise at the end. But, you know, they asked me to do specific things in the audition, you know, different things and whatnot um, that really, you know, brought out that aspect of them, that superhero aspect. So it was very, very cool to just re- to like realize that this was that character. And it's definitely like a role I've dreamed of since I've been acting, you know, and I've been acting since I was like 13 and I've always wanted to you know, play superheroes ever since I saw Batman, um, the original with Michael Keaton and, you know, all that stuff like that. And being able to like bring a a black superhero to life and, and this medium is like really, really cool for me. And, 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 and like kind of, I mean, not kind of, but really a dream come true. And when I got the phone call, I was so on the moon. And what was so funny is like, I had just gotten like kind of, um, crapped on a little bit out in the, I was in New York and then something bad kind of happened to me where I was kind of played a little bit, but then I had this thing that I knew I had just booked and I couldn't say anything. <laughs> and I was like, oh. But it was, it was just like really cool. I was on the moon and just like, Holy crap. I can't believe that they want me for this role. Like, you know, but then also knowing like, you know, I feel secure in my abilities and I really feel like I could bring something special to the character. And, and I, I love that they thought the same thing too. Were you, did you watch the show at all prior to getting the role of Curtis? I saw a couple episodes. I, I really don't watch a ton of TV generally or movies. I'm, I'm, I do a lot of live theater and live comedy and stuff like that. So I rarely am at home. But from, from the episodes I saw, I, I thought the show was really great. And all of my friends are like, like, they are on top of everything, but you know, I'm, I'm like busy and working and stuff like that. <laughs> but um, it was definitely a show that I was like, oh, that's a cool show. And one day I was like, I want to really want to watch it. One day I really want to catch up. And you know, when it took me like the, to the last season of Breaking Bad to finally catch up and watch it and binge through <laughs> it, playing up binging it. Because all my friends, like literally all my best friends, are like, you seen that room, man? You seen his letter? And I'm like, don't tell me anything. I want to watch it. I'm going to catch up. But then once I knew that I was even in a running for it, I like just started binge watching everything, you know, but I was definitely aware of like the comic book character uh, in the past. And I used to read like a lot of DC comics and Marvel comics and stuff growing up. So I was definitely aware of the character and knew it was a show that was pretty awesome. And I had normal good things, but uh, until I got the role, that's when I like binge watched all of it. That's exactly what I did with Arrow. It was already two seasons in before I had known about it, and everybody was like, you've got to watch Arrow. How can you be a comic book nerd and you're not watching Arrow? I just, I didn't get into it when it first started. And then I binge watched that mother, and it was amazing. And, you know, I think it was kind of also, you know, there used to be this perception of, like, the CW? Like, really? Like, right. just being by surprise, like, wait a minute, the CW has a cool comic book show? Which seems like ages ago that, you know, people used to think that. But I think, you know they really started to just bring so much. Like, I, I feel like the way they told the stories, it just made it make so much sense. And it really, really just showed that any network can really do anything they want. Like, even with AMC and not to go back to Breaking Bad again or Walking Dead, but, like, that really changed the outlook of that network. Oh, you know, yeah. like, them really hitting with that type of material and 
that CNCW do that really like opened my eyes and was like, holy crap, you know, that they have so much great material out there now. And I've even couple, caught up with a couple episodes of Supernatural and I'm like, damn, that's pretty good too. You know, so just like, <laughs> you know, interesting. But I, I'm now, you know, I'm so happy that I have it and like I have everyone binge watching it and being like, this is actually an amazing show. And, and just seeing, I mean, it's obviously has to do with the writers and, you know, Guggenheim and, and, and Berlanti and everyone, they just have a real, a real great cuss on really bringing these stories out to the forefront of uh, the, the film medium and really relying on those comic books and then creating their own span on things. So it's just a really, really cool show to witness. And I, it's one of those ones where I was like, ah, I wish I'd been watching it from the beginning, but you know, it's, it's so cool to, to be a part of it. And then also for the show to be so amazing too. But also as the actors, you guys play such a significant role in making this show so fun and entertaining to watch because the chemistry between you and Emily Bett Records is amazing. Emily Bett Records plays Felicity Smoke, and mm -hmm. this is like some of the best chemistry that I've seen in a long time between the two of you. Like seriously, if you guys had your own show, I would totally watch. <laughs> I have to give a lot of credit to David Rappaport. He's the casting director. And even when I came in and I read it the first time, he was like, oh, man, I think you and Emily would have a blast together. Like, he said that, and I was like, oh, really? It was just interesting. But he just, he has a great eye. Like, and he's he's phenomenal casting director. And he saw it from the jump, you know. And then just when I, the second I got on set, it was like, it was like I hadn't seen a friend in years, and it just we just picked back up. You know so what I'm saying? It naturally we for the two of you. Well, yeah, because she's so – I'm such a silly uh, person, and, like, always, I'm cracking jokes and just doing ridiculous things, and she is, like, so the same person. So it just really – our chemistry, I feel like, just meshed so well. And, like, even our friendship, like, you know, I honestly, like, love her to death. Like, she's such Aww. a sweet, caring, genuine – like good person and and everyone sees it every single person who has the chance to be around her is just completely enamored by how caring and down to earth and easygoing she is like it's it's literally like it's it's mind-blowing and i think she just brings out the best in a lot of people and it's just like i don't know i think everyone could have chemistry with her because she's just so amazing you know but I also feel like we have a lot of similarities, not trying to like pump myself up like I'm so amazing or anything, but <laughs> I the similarities and like sense of humor and, you know, style and music and stuff like that. So it just it just made everything like gel so well to like form a real friendship. And then also for these characters to form this real, you know, um, relationship that people are really gelling with. It, it, it honestly makes me like so happy. Because as an actor coming on to a new show, you know, you hope to just bring something to the table and right. not mess it up, you know, <laughs> for the fans and stuff like that. So I just feel, like, extremely honored and fortunate that, like, people are really liking everything that's going on with them and Terrific Smoke and everything. It's just really cool. I mean, you guys are creating, like, a large platform for geeks. I don't know if you guys realize that, but, like, tech geeks everywhere love seeing the two of you because you, you just don't see a lot of, especially, like, big superhero comic book shows where the geek is in charge and the geek is essentially the superhero um, or the superheroine in Felicity's case. So, I mean, it's really carving a new path for the geek tech archetype. Yeah, and that's, like, really important for science in general because you have to have kids. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what this thing is. It's supposed to go silent. We have to have kids 
who see these things and think, oh, I want to do that, like to forward the next like generation of scientists and people who care about like computers and all that type of all those type of things. So it's it's very awesome to just play even a small minuscule part in that that kids could look at the show and be like, I want to do science. I want to be into science. It's like so cool because that's like the only thing that can save us is in as a humanity is like these people who care about science and really dedicate their lives to it. And I think it's so cool just to show that geek is is cool. Geek is amazing. Geek is what like forwards us as a species, you know? Absolutely. You had mentioned earlier that you read comic books as a kid. So tell us a little bit about your comic book knowledge. I know that Mr. Terrific on the show is loosely based on the character of Michael Holt in the comics. Um, what what were you reading when you were a kid with DC and, and Marvel titles? What specific titles were you into? Um, I loved all the Dark Knight stuff. I thought that was, like, super cool. And then um, a lot of sagas like Death is Superman, um, like Marvel, like Age of Apocalypse, the Onslaught oh. sagas. Um, nice. And, like, Watchmen, like, we were reading, like, graphic novels and stuff, too, so... I, I mean, I, I pretty much loved every, I mean, all of it, you know, um, Spawn. I mean, I was, I was into a lot of different comics, um, but definitely like my best sagas, I think would have to be probably definitely Superman and like Onslaught probably. Nice. Now, is it just you that has a lot of comic book knowledge? Do, do any of the other cast members read comics? You know, I, I've never honestly asked anyone as they have they read comics on the set. I really couldn't answer that question. Um, I feel like I know, like as far as my friends go, um, they all they all love love comics, and we all share this one app called Comicsology on our iPads. Love Comicsology. Yeah, oh, that's my joint, and it's the pain, going from pain to pain. Mm-hmm. Oh, so tight! Like I've been uh, rereading the Walking Dead stuff, and it's just like nice. man. Just like I'm like, there's no better way to, to read comics nowadays than that, you know. But um, I, I I feel like Emily might might have read the comics for sure. She seems like she could be into that. But I, I've honestly never even thought to ask anybody that question. That's awesome. Well, I, I gotta ask this question. I would be remiss if I did not bring up this question on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Do you consider yourself a blurred? And <laughs> and would Curtis identify himself as one? <laughs> uh, I definitely consider myself a blurred. Yeah. Um, 100%. <laughs> One of my favorite art, uh, articles, I forgot the um, person who wrote it, but it was an article called Revenge the Black Nerd. came out maybe like four years ago in 2012 from someone from down south, and it was just really breaking down how this culture of, you know, this kind of hip, nerdy, different type of you know what i'm saying persona that's coming up is like really taking over popular culture and starting to step into the forefront of things and it was just really interesting to read that and i was like man i've been doing that my whole life like right. and getting picked on and beat up for it you know and now it's like this thing that a lot of people are really embracing and so it's kind of cool to see it come around 360 like that but it's definitely something you know growing up my friends and i that's partly what kept us out of trouble was being a group of Friends who love video games, comic books, um, you know, um, cool movies and stuff like that. They really kept us as a tight knit group and away from gangs and all that other stuff like that. And mm-hmm. generally the gang members left us alone 
because we were like the cool dudes who were hooking them up with the coolest video games and letting them know what comic books they need to be reading and stuff like that. Because that's like inside of people too. Even like if you're on like, you know, being the bad kid at school, you still love to like be caught up into like the coolest things that are happening. And it's definitely something I've noticed, like even in, in my limited amount of time being able to be on one of these superhero shows, how many people come up to me that I would never expect to come up to me and be like, I'm a huge comic book nerd. And like that character you're playing is like really cool. So it's like really awesome to see this, you know, the blurred culture really expand and to show that like everyone can be a blurred if you're black, obviously. Um, (laughs) No, but it's embraced. There's a lot of white people um, and, and non-black people that embrace (laughs) the blurred community as well. So I, 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 that's what I found to be pretty phenomenal since being a part of this space. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. <clears throat> it's 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 really cool. It's really cool to be a part in any capacity of the movement. And I mean, like, I I love that, like, you know, when Kanye came out and really kind of popularized a different side of hip hop. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you yeah. had like hip hop in New York and everything like that going on, like the '90s. But then gangster rap kind of took over, and then you know. You see a lot of people emulate these styles and stuff like that from the culture they take in. But it was cool to see like this nerd culture come out. But they're like, we're still I'm still cool. I am just being who I am. Like, you don't have to wear baggy pants when you go to school. And that doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. Even though, like, when I was 15 and 14 and doing that stuff, I got my butt kicked for doing that. (laughs) I remember remember those days, too. It was you, you had to be you know, dressed a certain way, you had to listen to a certain style of music in order to be cool, otherwise you would get clowned on. Yeah, yeah, hard. <laughs> hard. <laughs> what about Curtis? Does he consider himself a blurred? I definitely think he would, you know, I mean, because he's just, he's just so in the forefront of all of that, you know, uh, technology culture and inventive culture, and so, you know, he... He's the type of person that would recite, you know, periodic tables and everything like that, but still is a proud black man, you know, who represents that. And, you know, I definitely think he would uh, identify as a blurb. What are your thoughts about nerd culture among people of color um, as it stands today? And do you think that it's making an impact on the comic book TV universe? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I am a thousand percent for it because it invokes, first of all, like using your brain and being smart and like making smart cool again, you know, like that's, what's awesome about it is that this is part of me. These are things that we all need to be actively doing, like challenge ourselves mentally and constantly be thinking about how to forward ourselves, you know, and how to uh, best represent ourselves and and our culture. And I think it's a, a really great thing that that is really coming across so much and in my opinion it's really coming across more nowadays inside of popular culture and films and tv and whatnot and i think it'll only get better as time keeps progressing as you know cast and directors see oh yeah you know like people of color can definitely play any type of role and don't have to be stereotyped into the same specific roles anymore you know like i just right. feel like it needs, it needs we're a long way away but i feel like it continually gets better and better you know, like I went to an audition um, probably a year and a half ago and I walk in and I see another black guy and I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? You know, and automatically I'm like, yeah, we're reading for the same part. You know, that's just how it is. It's Hollywood. <laughs> and, you know, I look at his paper. He has a different part than I do. And I was like, oh, cool, man. Like, this is great. <laughs> 
we're cool now. We're not necessarily competing against each other for the same things anymore, you know. And then this most recent pilot season, I got to um, I got to test, uh, and test basically just means you get to be a finalist for a role mm. in a show, and they just go take you to the network to see what they think. I got to test for a couple of characters that were not originally written as black, and mm. you know that were leading characters and stuff like that and it was just really cool just to even get to that that close in the process which something 10 years ago they might not might not have even taken a chance in doing that right. you know so i feel like in those ways and whatnot we keep changing the dialogue and i feel like the blur culture and stuff like it's really helping for that dialogue to change it absolutely and i mean you're character Curtis Holt is very groundbreaking too in terms of pushing and breaking against stereotypes because you're playing the role of a black gay character who is very much a three-dimensional character how has the LGBTQ community responded to Curtis Holt and what are your thoughts about the impact of diversity in superhero roles um I think the LGBT community has been very 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 uh supportive um and that's important to me. Um, I was partially raised by an LGBT um, father figure. And, you know, like he just seeing like his pride and how happy he is to see that these diverse characters can exist on TV. And then also like just my friends, like I have a friend who um, is transitioning or whatnot uh, from being a man to a, to a woman. And, you know, he came to came up to me in the bar, you know, a couple of weeks ago and like had tears in his eyes because he was just so mm-hmm. happy that he could see someone on TV that represents him, you know, and he's a, you know, he's, you know, she's white and it doesn't matter about the race. It's just, you know, that they can be represented. And I think that's just important, like that you have to have equal representation out there. You have to be able to see yourself in that light to, so that that can help give you light to, to push yourself. You know, like if I didn't see Will Smith and these people acting, you know, I might not have thought people like me get to do that, you know, or stuff like that. So I think it's vastly important uh, to have diversity out there because that is the world we live in. You know, we don't live right. in some sheltered world where it's only one type of person and, you know, we're all different and we should all embrace and celebrate each other's differences. So it's really an honor to me to be able to portray that on film and to, you know, help people who identify as LGBT see representation of themselves on TV. I think it's just hugely important. And I think there needs to definitely be more and more of it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so grateful for um, the CW universe and and the work that Greg Berlanti has done with this show and and The Flash and having a black father figure and having a black Iris West that we as black girl nerds can look up to and even as recent as Supergirl, you know, making Jimmy Olsen a person of color. Like, it's good to see that because it is, in fact, reflecting what we see in our everyday lives, that the folks that we interact with on a daily basis they're not a monolith. People come from all different racial backgrounds. People are gender fluid in their identity and their sexuality. So I, I think it's important to represent that on screen. And I'm, I, that's why so many of us here in the Blur community support these kinds of shows, because this is what we, we crave and desire. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. When will we see... Okay, um, I'm going to be honest with you for a second. Um, so we were, as fans 
really begging hard for Diggle to get his suit. Once he did get his suit, it was an interesting hat that kind of looked a little bit like Magneto from X-Men. And he got coined the term Magnegro on Twitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, oh, because of the suit. So oh, I, I'm curious to know about your suit. When will we see Mr. Terrific in his suit? And have you been practicing on the salmon ladders uh, to get those abs in check? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'm trying to get up to the salmon ladder. I'm trying to work my way up there still. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's really interesting. Two years ago, uh, myself and a cult couple of very close personal friends of mine out in the industry, all actors and whatnot, we set and forth this operation called Operation Let's Take Over Hollywood. Um, and we were just like, we're tired of seeing all these buff dudes get all the cool comic book roles and stuff like that. And so we just went, we just started going to the gym, like as a group, like mm. hardcore. So like I got into the gym, like pretty crazy i put on like 30 pounds of muscle this before this is before i even booked um arrow and stuff like that so that's definitely like i'm a gym rat i love it but recently like two months ago i sprained my rotator cuff so i've been like out of commission a little but my salmon ladder skills are definitely getting getting back on point i'm starting to get back in so hopefully by the time i do don my costume you know I'll, i'll definitely be hitting the ladder up uh, but as far as the costume goes, I think they were saying potentially into this season, potentially next season. That happened for the costume. But they have they have kept me in the dark on that. I, I don't even know when I'll be able to don it. I just know it will happen eventually. Okay, so they're going to keep us waiting. Darn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> last question. What, what do you enjoy most about working on Arrow? You know, honestly... It's a tie between working with the actors out there like Emily and and Steven and David and the fans, honestly, the fandom. Um, You know, I've been on a couple of TV shows and they were all canceled. And it's just phenomenal to connect with people who are passionate about a project, you know, who, who really see these characters and, you know, they notice the parallels they have in their life and they really push it and drive for these characters. And it's like just so cool to just be able to connect with people like that on a daily basis. And it just like for me, it's 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 about like getting back, you know, because it's like as actors, you know, if if we don't have fans, we're just rehearsing. Mm. It's not really a show, you know, so it's just that aspect of it. And being able to give light to people who bring a lot of light to me is probably the thing that I love the most about being on a show like this. Um, and like I said, that's, it's tight, you know, cause I really do love working with all the actors out there. Cause they're all just so amazing and really, really, you know, have me thinking of things in different ways. And I learned so much from every person that I act against and it's, it's just such an amazing feeling, you know, um, to, to get to work with people who, who are so professional, so talented, and also so silly and down to earth, you know, that's really great. But then it's like the fans that really, really, really make me proud and happy to be on the show. Well, thank you so, so much, Echo, for, for talking to us. I hope we see more of the Salmon Ladder soon. I feel some type of way that <laughs> it was like a third character in season one and we don't see it that much this season. So I'm concerned that it's been missing. 
But I, I look forward to seeing you in that suit and give everybody there my best. I, I had a chance to meet Katrina Law earlier this year, and she is sweet and definitely so down sweet, to earth. Yeah. So everything that you say about the cast is absolutely true. And thank you for coming in and uh, talking to us and talking about all things blurred culture. Heck yeah, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Real Ninja, what's up? Uh, Leaf Village in the building. Inglewood, ready? Flip up stage and a backpack. Sack full of dreams, they trying to pirate like Flapjack. You ain't get it? Uh, I'll bring the Calamine. Blue, you gotta rub it in, set a pile of mine. Show a little attitude. Where your spice at? You say you give them food for thought, they're like that. So now I'm getting it, getting it, till they're getting it's good. They say you gotta dumb it down, make a hit in the hood. But I've been in the hood, why would I stay in the hood? Gamers come with bad mechanics, they don't play in the hood. Plus the fam wanted me to get my life right. Ain't for the stars, the gun in this night fight. Quite like might never be another tight son. In this race, I'm loyal, kid, I don't like son. I keep it true, uh, I paint the sky blue, man. What you do, what you do? Feeling like Dwayne Wayne in a different world. I'm just trying to maintain. Trying to maintain. Uh, coolest nerd in the game. I ain't worried about them. Man, they y'all. I'm gonna put them on game. Yeah. Let me put them on game. What? About to put them on game. Yeah. I'm gonna put them on game. Do my own thing. Everybody on me. I wear shorts and restaurants. Sometimes you gotta show knees. You see these calf muscles there? Baby, I've been running against this ready go songs. Put them on game. Yeah. I'ma put them on game. Put them on. Put them on.